plugging in so you can avoid I see a group of ghosts that are coming toward me. I never know what he's going to do. I never yeah, know what he's going to do. It's like it's developing into like a story. Uh, I don't <laughs> I yeah. don't get it. Yeah, uh, I bet it will reveal later on what story it is that he's it's developing. Doubtful. It to. Yeah. Um, so welcome to Director Beast Theater. My name is Abe Epperson. I am here with with me. <laughs> with me, Adam Ganser. I am joined <laughs> by say your name again. My name's Adam Ganser. I, I I didn't realize I'm here and then I was supposed to supply the rest of the sentence. Uh my <laughs> no, apologies. No, no. I kind of just stuttered for a bit because I was like Wait a second. I am here. Wait, I am here, aren't I? <laughs> uh, you read the thing. I did. Director Peace Theater is, you know, if you haven't listened to this, we're two we're two directors. We talk shop about usually films that you don't expect are going to be that good or True. aspects of films that you didn't expect to be interesting, more interesting than uh maybe you saw it the first time. Um yeah, so this episode is an Adam show. Mm. Uh, yeah. This is Adam's baby. You tuned in for Hero. the right week, listeners. Mm. <laughs> Abe and I have a friendly competition. You'll see. It <laughs> permeates the episode. No, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Fuck face. So, uh, no, it's great. Take me through your theory of Unbreakable. Okay, great. So, um, hey, today we're going to talk about M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that this episode started with me watching the movie Unbreakable and being interested in like one particular aspect of the filmmaking. And it sort of spun my mind out to like the larger M. Night Shyamalan conversation that I feel is, Mm -hmm. uh, it happens every time a movie of his comes out, right? Like Mm -hmm. basically every time a movie of his comes out, uh, or there's a, a new reason for this chat to happen. There's the he sucks or he's great or he's uh, mm-hmm. like just sort of the ranking of M. Night Shyamalan uh, as a I feel like as a director, I can't think of another filmmaker who uh, is so well known, like universally known, but also such mixed opinions. Right. Yeah, He's really polarizing. Yeah. And some of his films are really like objectively bad and. Some of them are objectively good, so it's very strange. He really to hear people go to ranges, town. yeah. He really ranges, yeah. and I I also think that uh, it's fair to say people don't always agree on his quality level as a whole, right? Like I've I've yeah. read and heard uh, proponents of M Night who will say he consistently makes decent films. Like, he doesn't have bad films. He has decent films, and he mm-hmm. has occasionally excellent movies, right? So, mm-hmm. like, they'll admit that the quality is not the same across all the films, because that would be a pretty uh, absurd point of view. But, you know, his floor is decent. And and uh, one of the aspects of that argument I often encounter is that he is mostly a financial success, meaning people go to see his movies. Like, they, he consistently makes money... I don't know if that's always true every time, but for a very long time, he was commercially successful. Um, and he has recently journeyed into what you might call independent film because he's sort of started self-financing. And mm-hmm. that decision has led to a, a uptick in quality from films like The Visit, uh, Split, and Glass. So, like, he's still got it, baby! 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You, like, you think that you watched the visit and you went? He still got it. Baby. I did not, but I but I see people saying that. Uh, I see okay, people saying. Okay, that. I see. Uh, and yeah. and like I think that's sort of a subtle way of arguing a thing that a lot of movie fans sort of believe in their core, which is like it's it, maybe it's the studio, you know, maybe the studio is the problem mm-hmm. with any movie, and mm-hmm. specifically his. Um, yeah, that's an interesting. This is going to be fun. Yeah, right. So like, let me also just as by way of intro sort of put out there what I think most people really think, which is uh, he's only really made one great movie, and that is Sixth Sense. And he's made a number Ooh. of movies that you might call good, right? But Sixth Sense is his great movie. And, I don't uh, even agree with that. Okay, great. That's fine. That, great. I think most people probably would. Um, I might be wrong about that, but that's that's an opinion I feel like I've heard the most, is like that was his great one. Um, okay. And then everything after that has been uh, a decline in quality to some degree or another. It's definitely the most sensational. I'll grant you that no matter what. It's the one that put him on the map, rightfully so. That twist, we never saw it coming. And it's a great twist and all that stuff. It's well-crafted. Sixth Sense was an experience. It took over. Uh, God, it was so long ago. But like I remember it taking over just all movie conversation for a while. Yep. I mean, first of all, it's sort of an anti-Bruce Willis role, uh, which is not mm-hmm. even the most memorable thing about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Haley Joel Osment's whole career is basically derivative of that performance, mm-hmm. right? I mean, or at least can be traced back to that performance. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And, I mean, the guy was being compared to Hitchcock after that movie. Yes, he was, you know? which is Violin. insane. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, I think it's hard to argue that movies like uh, Lady in the Water... Or the happening, or like the last airbender, are good. Uh, I think that's yeah. a tough argument. Uh, <laughs> I actually have I have an argument to say why the Lady in the Water is an inch more interesting film than most people think, but it isn't. It doesn't captivate you. No, not it's in not that, interesting like, in like it, a emotional not the way, way that like signs. Uh, right. You know, obviously, Sixth Sense uh, and this one does Unbreakable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think. Probably by most people considered one of his best, like top three, probably. Right. And I um, I think that's right. Uh, and I've, I don't know if I've seen all of his films. I've seen like, I want to say seven or eight of them, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot. Uh, this movie I've watched several times, uh, but I will cop to right away. I will cop to, I fell asleep in the theater watching this movie. Uh, that's not um, that's not an endorsement. No, <laughs> it's not. It's one of two movies I've fallen asleep in the theater. The other mm-hmm. one was AI. Uh and Ooh. there was like it was not a medical reason. It was like I just got bored. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I think even this movie, you can make some arguments on either side. But so the point is, though, I think that the jury's kind of still out in some ways on Midnight Shyamalan, despite how much uh, how much material we have. Like I think his place in history or his quality as a predictor, like we don't really know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you never know what you're going to get with him. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Uh, so the point being, I think finally we're going to get the answer with this movie old. I think finally we're going to know if he's good or not. (laughs) Look, as soon when I saw that trailer, I knew, you know, all right. So we're recording this on the weekend of old. Uh, that's what I've called it. Old weekend. Yeah. The dawn of Um, old. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I'm going to go to it tomorrow 
Uh, I'm really excited about it. Uh, right. If you follow me on social, my you know entire <laughs> uh, identity has been taken over by the movie Old. You've uh, loved this shit. You love every it. day. I wake up and think about what Old could be about, <laughs> <laughs> and then I write, I type it into a machine, and people see it. Yeah. You know, we're gonna t- we're, we're gonna see what Old says about M Night Shyamalan. Absolutely, that's not what this podcast is about. But it's man, not. But I've never been more hyped for anything than for you to see old. <laughs> like yeah. Abe seeing old is my summer ex- blockbuster experience. Mm. You know, uh, yeah, I'm really into it. I love uh, old. <laughs> <laughs> I just I want you to don't be. Know if I love old. I want you to be in a mask or some shit when you watch it. Like, I just want. I want it to really be a full full fledged thing. Uh, uh, I'm dressed into the nines, baby. I'm yeah, pulling out suit. the suit. Yeah, mm-hmm. love it. I really like that I, idea. I just got it pressed. Yeah. I, I will be liking any photos that cross my desk from that experience. Anyone, I will be liking it. Uh, and it will be well-deserved. <laughs> yeah, but it, uh, rightfully so, though. Because, like, it, in terms of to bring it up, just because, like, we, usually we know what we like and what we don't. Uh, right. And I, obviously that can, that can be true for everybody for M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, you know, because it's a matter of opinion. But what's interesting is that he's got such like, I'm glad you brought this topic because it's such a nebulous thing that I think sometimes people need to be reminded that people can be multiple things. Right. They can have multiple experiences that are like, and as filmmakers, some of them are bad for the rest of humanity. Some of them are great. You know, it's like, it's fine. Uh, I don't think. I think it's interesting what you're going to say only in that, like, I don't think anyone needs to, by the end of this, have come to an opinion about M. Night Shyamalan. No, no, I don't think so either. But maybe you'll be swayed. I don't know. Whatever gets you off, man. Yeah, for real. I'm talking to, you know, whoever. People getting off to this podcast. (laughs) People who listen to this podcast and get off. You sickos. (laughs) All right, let's go. We're not turning those people away, though. They can listen if they want to listen. Uh, secret, secretly, I need you. Yeah, you need it. Yeah, you need to know go, what's happening. Go away. Go yeah. away. Come back. Yep. Come back. Yep. Go away. Come back. <laughs> so uh, I love you. <laughs> I want to take us on a journey to a more innocent time uh, to investigate this film. Uh, this is a time, year 2001, by the way, or 2000, I think it's 2000. 2000. Uh, yes. Uh, this is a time when M. Night Shyamalan could have gotten anything he wanted greenlit. Anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is a time when like comic book movies writ large were so uh, atypical that the story of Unbreakable was seen as uh, adventurous and thoughtful and just a basic introduction into comics was considered a, a cool plot device. Like that's mm-hmm. how long ago this really was culturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, like this happened before, like the greatest apocalypse we were worried about was Y2K. Like, I just love like thinking about, my God, this movie came out in a alternate universe. Um, and like the crux of this argument is sort of twofold. I think that Unbreakable represents uh, a better window into who M. Night Shyamalan is as a filmmaker than The Sixth Sense does. Um, and I'm going to show how Unbreakable shows his good things and his sort of flawed approaches and uh, why we have such a mixed opinion about his work. Um, Specifically because he has a challenging relationship to emotional versus intellectual motivations in his films. 
Um, and so that's what I kind of want to talk about. I know that seems a little abstract. I'll define those words. But okay, yeah. we're going to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's interest or motive in a film being either emotionally based or sort of abstractly intellectually based and uh, how that does or does not work based on the movie Unbreakable. Um, so to begin, mm-hmm. um, I want to start with his premises, like not just Unbreakable, but just sort of the premises that M. Night Shyamalan t- attaches to. Um, because mm-hmm. he's often the writer of his films. That's another thing that like makes him unique in cinema history. He's like one of the only directors who really consistently is the writer of his film. You know? Yeah, he seems like uh, an artur uh, yes. in so many ways. Yes. Which is, I, I think, why, which is hilarious to me. Uh, my, most people came off the cuff immediately with the Hitchcock references mm-hmm. uh, in his career because he does the, a very he's obviously very good at suspense uh, and he feels like a craftsmanship director and by that I mean that he's like able to mechanize the tools of the directing toolkit in a way that terrifies you or makes someone f- like you feel a moment uh, he's very good at that he can pull it off. He had, he, with his first three movies, he did it, you know, uh, Pretty and effectively. so on to- on top of the fact that he was doing that, which is very, like we get, we immediately go, okay, this guy, it might be an instant classic. We think of Hitchcock because he's working in the same, you know, arenas, but on top of that, he also wrote it. So that means he's even better than Hitchcock. Right. It's just hilarious because Hitchcock, like he, ne- he never begged for that comparison. I mean, I right, don't know course. what Hitchcock's into. Right. And he, Hitchcock was always a studio director. You know, like it, it was a different time. He was never. Our tour wasn't even an option when he was working. You know. Yeah, the tour. The term auteur has come to mean in recent times. It's uh, come to sort of imply that the director wrote the script, like as in the entire idea is g- generated from the director. But right. like that isn't really true historically. Like I like two it's not. two names sprung to mind immediately. One of them was Hitchcock, as you said. The other is Kubrick, and they didn't really write their material. You know, no, and uh, neither did Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg he like write led. His yeah, uh, Lucas technically did though at the start. You know, like um, right. I, it's but it's that rare. these are the yeah. yeah. It's it's just when it came to being, but I think it became more of like a definition after the fact, where it's like. We need to differ- differentiate some of these directors from others. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's directors aren't very low number of directors are the writers themselves. So it's, it's, it's it very just seems rare. impressive. And, and certainly yeah. not over the long period of their career like he has been. Right? right. Like lots of directors will have scripts they wrote or write one or two of their films or whatever. Right. Or, or co-write right. some of their scripts. And Matt Shyamalan's been the author of most of his movies um, for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think just like taking a step back and thinking about his selection of premises, especially the early ones, can tell you sort of why he's such an exciting filmmaker, right? So like what I'm going to do is let me just like read off three log lines to you and think about how exciting of a movie that sounds like based on just the log line, okay? Mm -hmm. So the first one, a troubled child consults a depressed psychologist about his morbid hallucinations only to discover the hallucinations are actually spirits from the afterlife seeking his help. Yep. That's a cool movie, right? Like, Yeah. It's a good good movie. Yeah. Second one, the sole survivor of a horrific train crash befriends an eccentric comic collector who insists that he is, in fact, a a mythical superhero. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the last one, a former pastor still struggling from the accidental death of his wife must protect and reassure his family when aliens invade. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's like, you know, yeah, those all sound like awesome movies. They're not all awesome movies, but they sound like it. Um, the- yeah. You know what else? You know what else is uh, like? I just something that's just blaring at me uh, when, I, you know, as we read these over. Uh, what's interesting to me is that in all three cases, uh, you know, it, it, it started, it, it starts essentially with a character and their personal struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it introduces a, I guess, twist is what we came to call it, but it wasn't always it's a twist. It's not always a like twist. It, yeah, aliens invading is not a twist. No. You know, like he, we just like the fact that he used that format, I think, with his first, you know. His first one, uh, which is crazy. That's just how, how, how insane is that? That as uh, as moviegoers, we allowed that to happen, you know, culturally. But he kept doing but it, like, right? Yeah. yeah. What you see though is you see a, a uh, like a internal conflict, like a, th- a troubled child, a person dealing with uh, guilt, and a former pastor, you know, also dealing with guilt. Yeah. yeah, and disillusionment from the faith. Uh, they have their personal struggle. That is just what. They, he just goes completely in a different direction that you wouldn't expect. Mythical superhero, aliens invading, yeah, spirits actual from the afterlife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like when we're trying to, you know, examine the brewing pot of what makes a M. Night Shyamalan story, I think it's always, it's very interesting to notice that it's always like character first. It's always character first as a presentation. That's, Which is that's not true thing. of all high concept things like sci-fi tradition isn't that it's not or isn't. But also, I mean, this isn't his log line. This is mine. I wrote it. So like, uh, I don't know it's exactly how he lens. wrote them, uh, yeah. but I wrote But them. it's true of the stories yeah. regardless. Well, that's the thing is like, uh, so you're right in the sense, certainly like it, from a certain lens, when you read these premises, you're like, these are like really well thought out and scaled stories that juxtapose sort of deeply private primal experiences with uh, epic, uh, unexpected, unexpected, like often supernatural Fan- troubles, right? Like, fantastic, yeah, fantastic elements, pro- premise offers, right? That, and so, yeah. if you're a studio executive, you're like, this guy is a golden egg. You know what I mean? Especially when he starts making money, uh, mm-hmm. because he he has great premises, but. See, I think the key difference, though, between Sixth Sense and Unbreakable starts here. Sixth Sense's point of view is a lot more defined and sympathetic than Unbreakable's is. Like, Sixth Sense is being told from the lens of a kid who's being bullied. And so everything that happens uh, is always sort of driven back to that lens of a kid uh, who can't seem to find any peace or hope in his life and a family that's being torn apart by a thing they don't understand. That primal right. experience is much more interesting than ghosts, right? The ghosts are cool, and it's a fun way for this movie to go. Um, and right. certainly the twist is memorable. But the reason that people care is because the the single parent family like struggle is the core engine. And that yeah, doesn't yeah, that's... yeah, that doesn't really translate in the same way in unbreakable. So like I represented that in a log line with the sole survivor of a horrific train crash. That is an emotional summary of what happens, but that's not really the engine that motivates this character. The engine that motivates this character whose name is David Dunn 
is that he's sort of like vaguely unsatisfied with his life. A fact that gets developed as, like or explained by this comic book guy is like it's because you're a, you're a, you know a magical superhero basically that's why you're so unhappy because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and mm-hmm. while his reluctance his being David Dunn's reluctance to explore this idea is like it's understandable you can see why he wouldn't do it right because it's too fantastic and it's you know he doesn't want to take a lot of risks that's not like a super deep emotional conflict right like that's a lot much more vague obtuse conflict and so it's not as interesting you know I, we're okay. we're just like the, because of that i think the movie begins to feel slow uh, i think you're selling it short though cuz i don't think that that's the main emotional conflict to be honest what do you think it is uh it's it's a movie about trauma and dealing with trauma it's a movie about survivor's guilt uh, about not being able but to even, move on to better even yourself that, because you go ahead. Okay. I interrupted you. Well, uh, no, no, it will just, uh, you know, just explaining the definition is all, I mean, I feel like, you know, I do what know what you is. mean, but even that w- is very diffusely deployed in the film, right? Like that's okay. not a, that's not like a, that's not a driving force. That's a much more passive force, right? And it's it's Th- a- that is true. I'm just I was only taking I was only going like ah, oh, but teacher. Uh, I was only saying that because you said it's not a deep emotional conflict. And I would I would I mean for the audience. Differ. I think there's I mean for the deep audience moments in this. Right, I right. think so. I, I'm an audience. I think so. Okay, I don't. I, I think that the audience is more detached from this pro this guy's problem than they are from the kid's problem in on in the sixth sense right like it's a mm. lot more the movie pushes you out because it expects you to do more analytical work about what's going on than sixth sense does which is sort of the crux of i think m night Shyamalan's issue as a filmmaker is like sometimes if you're willing to kind of like attach things that don't necessarily emotionally attach they do mm-hmm. sort of like, ooh, that was cool. But the experience of it is not necessarily going to hit you in the face. Like, you can't be a passive watcher and connect all these dots, usually. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. like, essentially the problem, in my mind, with Unbreakable, or why it's not as effective. I'm not saying it's, it's not as effective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying it's you're, not you're effective saying at all. Like, I'm just saying. We feel the movie's a little bit slow, yeah. for example, is something you said. And I was like, yes, that's true. A passive kind of conflict like that you got to have to you have to kind of combine the right elements to make it slow mm-hmm. uh, or to not make it not slow you have to force the screenplay to kind of push it forward through you know like tricky screenwriting tricks uh in order to motivate the scene to be like hey character the thing you don't want to happen is about to happen deal with that you know like um that's what screenwriting is uh for most part is finding scenes that are Correct. that. And I do think that there are a few deep ones. And I'm there sure are, you agree. Absolutely. Like, uh, you know, the scene with him and his son with the gun. That's the one or, we're going to talk about later on. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. No, no, totally. Don't hear me saying that Unbreakable's bad and Sixth Sense is good. I'm not saying that. Mm. I'm okay. saying Sixth Sense is more effective as a film because of okay. this distinction. And the distinction is that when the when the movie is told through the lens of a person's pain that we can immediately and regularly understand and connect to, we're more interested in his subjects. When it isn't, uh, then mm-hmm. we're not as interested. And he doesn't always know which one is the... Or not, I don't want to say no. He doesn't always choose uh, lenses that, that help us get into his movie. 
Like sometimes right, you choose right. lenses that are less helpful. Uh, I actually mm-hmm. would say in The Sixth Sense, I want to talk a little bit about the twists because everybody loves the twists in his movie so much. Oh, the twist! The twist! I so love the twist! In Sixth Sense, the twist, of course, is that Bruce Will spoilers, is that Bruce Willis is also a ghost, right? And that yeah. uh, that uh, this child, Cole, I want to say, the name, kid's name is Cole. Cole. Yeah, yeah. Cole has actually been helping him to move on uh, in addition to all the other ghosts that he's helped move on. And that's like a cool twist. And that twist helps to sort of heighten and recontextualize the fundamental experience of this movie, which is this, this kid's sort of pain and growth, right? It doesn't, def- but it doesn't really fundamentally define what the movie's about. It's just sort of a heightening of it really. Now yeah, 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 that's yeah, not the same yeah. thing as what happens in, in unbreakable In unbreakable. The twist is that uh, Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Elijah uh, Elijah is actually the supervillain. And the problem with that reveal, although it is cool, it's very cool, is that uh, he, Elijah is actually a sort of more compelling character uh, because his pain is very omnipresent, right? Like this is a guy who's always getting hurt, always getting ignored, always getting misunderstood, right? And so we mm. come to sympathize with him and then the movie decides at the end, yes, but that made him into a maniac. And so we have to sort of, our our ultimate reaction is oh that's cool but uh bummer right like we're detached from this mm. character now mm-hmm. instead of the opposite experience which is like getting attached to the character more because we realize he's a ghost right. yeah and again and this is this may seem like a very fine line distinction and sometimes it's not a one to one thing but the experience of the twist in unbreakable is an intellectual appreciation that's what mm-hmm. makes us go cool, right? It's like, oh, yeah. he inverted things. Like, I'm aware of the movie makers, like, having done a sleight of hand on me. That's cool. Your brain goes back to all the moments before you go, oh, I guess that kid. Yeah. Oh, he, oh, he covered his base there, too. Right. You know? It doesn't necessarily deliver on an emotionally satisfactory level. Whereas I would say the twist in Sixth Sense does. Because we're, we're still waiting for Bruce Willis's, like, story to resolve. And it resolves it, and also it uh, it reinforces rather than abstracts what the concept of the movie is. Um, so, and some people are going to say, "Well, but I like the twist better of this and that." And I, hey, man, I'm not here to argue your your specific experience. Everyone's allowed to have their ex- specific experience and to defend it as much as they want. But I think you can look at this and uh, and understand that the actual emotional mechanic of it is a mm-hmm. lot more abstract in Unbreakable than it is in Sixth Sense. And I have a random aside question. I'm ready for it. I'm ready. Uh, just because I feel like you'll help me through it. Great. What is the? What would you argue is the um, main emotional conflict for Bruce Willis in Sixth Sense? Uh, I think he is trying to find out what happened to him. You know, like he's trying to he he doesn't he needs he's trying to bring all these broken pieces of his life together, but he can't because right. he doesn't actually understand what his life is. Right. Right. Which like is that's thematically tied to being right. a ghost. Right? right. And to how this kid's and to this kid's experience of his life. So it's not so he doesn't even understand. He doesn't know the question even. But, right. Exactly. They, they're on parallel journeys, I would say. Uh, you know, like, because I'd say Cole also has this problem, right? He doesn't understand that he is seeing actual ghosts and what he is, what they're asking of him. Right. That's why he needs Bruce Willis. 
So like mm-hmm. they're both sort of doing for the other what they can't do for themselves. Right? They're sort of both mm-hmm. helpless. And I think the helplessness is like a fun is the fundamental emotional core of it that we're like that keeps us in like engaged you know Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. so and i like that about it um yeah i like that about it whereas and i i again i don't want to dismiss the pain that bruce willis's character is having but like he also sort of like conveniently doesn't remember things the way that like he's just sort of he's sort of suppressed a lot of things and yeah the they get yeah. revealed in the course of time in a way that feels very movie like mm-hmm. not necessarily like uh not necessarily by like these big emotional catharsis like i don't know that we're necessarily rooting for him to like hey hey man i hope your family makes it you know i hope you yeah, like, are we rooting for yeah. that kind of you know i mean a little bit are we rooting for his no, marriage no i think I, I i always felt that this viewing uh reminded me that you man you really feel the hand holding he does yeah that the conversations between him and Robin Wright, when they're like, I don't know, you when when is when have I been sick last? You know, it's like <laughs> they, it's right. very obvious that there's expositional. Like, they're not. It's that's not a dramatic moment. He's also Superman, right? So he he's his flaws. A have to be internal, but B like the whole idea rests on the fact that he is kind of flawless in a lot of ways. Like he's morally solid as well. Right. He's just Uh, a good guy. Uh, He's a good guy. It's hard to do Superman as a flaw. Yeah. I mean, I want, and that's going to lead us to uh, talking about the camera moves because the one flaw they explore is like right up top in this movie. Um, And I I don't know. Is, his marriage right but also his marriage is in sort of on the upswing from the very beginning of this movie really because they're both open to they're but they're like they're not closed off to each other like they're in like a i'd like to make this work yeah maybe we should try yeah let's try it does start with him taking off his wedding ring that's the thing like in yes in terms of screenwriting i do think that Shyamalan in this moment is nailing it oh see Uh, i don't think he is nailing that i think that feels very like uh, very disconnected from the rest of the marriage conflict. Oh, interesting. You know, like that's that's actually my critique of it is like he's actually his marriage. He seems to want to work on his marriage. Like they seem yeah. to be in a fight for reasons neither of them understand. So like his attempt to have an affair at the beginning is really just trying to get us to think like, oh, he's in a bad place, or like maybe but- even judge him a little bit. Hmm. Um, t- yeah, I think so. There's some of that, but like, it doesn't have to be logical for them to be unhappy, right? It doesn't have to be logical, but it does we just know they're unhappy. I, so, you but think- it needs to paint a picture where we understand the dynamic, mm-hmm. and I think the dynamic gets convoluted. I think it gets. I think he actually makes it real clean because he's just like, I don't need to explain to you that they, as a unit, they're not working anymore. Like the love is gone, kind of stuff. But the love isn't gone. Uh, the pit. You know uh, what I mean? It is. It is. And then it kind of comes back as he finds his identity. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of any I, I, I hear you. I, think I we just disagree dis- with you. Yeah, that's okay. I But I don't think the movie is making it as clear as you're making it out to be. Because I think the okay. movie sort of contradicts itself uh, numerous yeah. times with this issue. Like it's And it's mostly in Robin Wright, in Robin mm. Wright Penn's character. Because she seems to want to reconcile... She can't really explain what their issues are. 
Uh, and like she's, I guess she's just sort of waiting for him to like figure himself out. And maybe that's the answer, but again, it's not really dialed in in a way that we can connect to. Whereas like nobody has to explain to you at all, or can even argue with at all what the problem is in sixth sense. You know what it is. It's like this kid's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. life has fallen apart and his mother's life has fallen Mm -hmm. apart because of this, you know, these ghosts apparently. Um, also this is like, a, I know this is going to sound like a little dig and believe me, I do like unbreakable. I'm not trying to make it sound bad. I'm just trying to contrast it. Um, mm-hmm. the other dumb thing about this movie is that sometimes Shyamalan com- commits to a thing that is cooler on paper than it is in practice. And I yeah, think, uh, yeah. yeah. And I think that the fact that Bruce Willis's like weakness is water is, uh, one of those things, uh, not mm-hmm. because he can't have a weakness, but because water is so much of the universe or like of the, of like his life. Yeah. He really, lo- he does that in science. Yeah. Too. And it's, it's like, no, uh, not that. He's got a thing with water, man. Yeah. A uh, lady in the water. Like I think right. he's just terrified of water. Right. <laughs> like I think right. M. Night Shyamalan is terrified of water. My, uh, my suspicion yeah. is that he thinks that is a, is like an, uh, like a really unusual cool tick. Um, and right. I think it it's the kind of tick that's such a big swing that because it misses, we actually question, like, why did you do that? Uh, for me, and that's my impression of it. And I think that is a good example of times when M. Night Shyamalan didn't pick a weakness that had an emotional core. It Instead, mm-hmm. it was like, it was cool. Like, it was cool on a spreadsheet to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, both, I like both to think times. Of What's that? Little I like to think of little M. Night. When he's, you know, a little, little boy, he's reading his filmmaking books, yeah. you know. Spilling. And he, Spilling on himself. And, he, and, and it's like, yeah, and his teacher's like, what's wrong, M. Night? <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. It's just water. And <laughs> you ever realize Water what? and plants, they freak me out, okay? They freak me out. Why does it have They're weird. two hydrogens? Why does it need two hydrogens? What if the plants are talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all full of water. We're full of water. Right. This is fucked up. Yeah. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, you know what I mean? It's, just, <laughs> it's like being allergic to like dirt or like, uh, yeah, or like it's oxygen. Strange. It's like, come on now, man. <laughs> like, I, yeah, yeah, it's because he wants something elemental. He wants something right. fundamental to be like... Oh, if his weakness is something that like we all find like whatever, like water's great because uh, it is, you know, like we he feels that that will add something. And you're right on paper, on paper. It, and like that, I think, is a good sort of like quint- like a like a broad summary of this point, which is mm-hmm. like like I think the best way to create a, a compelling flaw in a character like especially as superheroes to like find something that has emotional value to them and make them like make that the thing, you know? Uh, and mm. he, you know, like for instance, uh, Harry Potter, um, one of his flaw, like his, his flaw and his, like one of his pain points is the fact that his parents were killed by this person who he has to overcome. And the fact that he is like, like, so he sort of is stained emotionally by this, but he's also stained, like physically, right, with a scar on his head that also turns out to be a literal prophecy for his destiny. Like that's pretty mm-hmm. well mapped out. You know mm-hmm. how to do like a superhero flaw, and it and it tracks emotionally. Whereas this is much more abstract. You get the point. That's that's mm-hmm. uh, that's the point there. So um, this this dichotomy that we've been exploring so far 
also exists in like uh, the camera work, like down to the how he makes his films also mm. sort of shows this flaw that he has. Um, or I guess conflict that he has. Because sometimes I think his choices really work, even if they're not emotional. Um, so one of the things that Unbreakable started to do that other films, or like, or at least The Sixth Sense, didn't do as much, and he started to really do it later more after Unbreakable, um, mm-hmm. is use unmotivated camera moves. So yeah. what I mean by unmotivated unmotiv- camera moves, what does that mean? Um, camera moves in a movie are generally... And by that, I mean something on a dolly or a steady cam or, you know, slider or whatever. Um, they happen because a character is either in motion or is looking at something. And so we follow that look or because uh, we're in a p- point of view that indicates some either a new person is there or that we're watching, uh, given that character's disposition. Um, essentially, the camera is obligated to move in this trajectory because the drama of the scene uh, demands it from us. And so when that happens, mm-hmm. you usually don't even notice the camera move, right? Like a camera move that's motivated is a move that just, it's just showing you what you expect to see. So you don't think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happens like all the time. Okay. Um, there's so many examples of it. Like you've seen a hundred dolly moves where a person looks at a thing, camera pans right. over to find it. Right. People are fighting a gun falls out of one of their pockets and slides across the and floor. And we Camera it. sweeps Correct. over to an insert as their eyes, you know, like look at the gun, rack focus. We know it's going to happen next. Right. Especially the louder the move, the more we notice it, right? So if it like is a dolly that like sweeps and like turns 180, like these are things where we go, oh, that's a loud camera move as opposed to just a subtle little like push in or something like that that's correct um and also i include when i use the term motivated camera i would even include things that are point of view things like say uh, a camera that creeps in a horror movie that sort of implies there's a person Mm -hmm. watching or moving toward the subject uh or things that are sort of even more obtuse like the bowling ball cam in the big lebowski dream sequence or something you know, mm. where we're in a point of view and that's why the camera's doing what it's doing. And you never think the camera shouldn't be moving. Why is it doing that? You know, right. um, it makes sure. a lot of sense. We've also in this show uh, talked about how the point of a lot of camera moves is to create what you might call a sort of continuity of motion. Right. Like a, mm. a feeling of either this thing is in motion or that all the motion is leading us somewhere we expect. Um, right. So in our Dark Knight episode, for instance, we talked about how the consistent pace and style of the Steadicam sort of gives us a sense of perpetual motion and like lets us relax. Like we're like, okay, we're mm-hmm. in good hands, right? I think you said it perfectly in that episode that like Nolan has a speed, like he has a rhythm and a speed and he sets it up mm-hmm. pretty cleanly in that mm-hmm. movie. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Michael Bay, quite frankly, uses camera moves to this in this way and he's very effective yeah. with it. You know, that's why he keeps making money. Um, Yeah. So an unmotivated camera move is when there's no obvious motion cue or drama cue or point of view cue that would necessitate Mm -hmm. the camera having to move. But it still happens. Right now, this happens, by the way, in movies a lot. A lot of there's a lot of movies, for instance, where we'll get a dolly up to a person's face or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where there's a steady cam sort of creeping around a corner to show us something and there's not a character leading us there. That stuff happens mm-hmm. all the time. Um, but unmotivated camera moves feel more obvious to us as, a, as an audience because 
they ask us to stop looking at what we would normally look at in a frame. Like, so they're like, no, no, we're going to go this way. And uh, they often feel flashy for this reason. Um, A lot of oneers in movies will employ unmotivated camera moves because it's very difficult to motivate a camera move that's a oneer. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes there'll be pieces of a one where the camera just veer into a new area or veer into a new trajectory. And it's not motivated because we want to keep the shot together. And that's the moment where we're like, oh, cool. It's one shot. Oh, right. Like that's the effect yeah. that it has. What's its motivation to be over there? Right? <laughs> right. It's not because yeah. it's cool. Uh, yeah, not it has no, nothing, you know, emotionally or thematically. It's just got a over the two feet over there that's right now honestly i think i just like landed on something i probably should just say uh i wish i'd said at the outset but like sometimes when i'm referring to like intellectual motives what i really Mm -hmm. mean is because it's cool like a lot of intellectual motives (laughs) in a film are because it's cool uh it's big it it had i think it's because yeah i i learned this lexicon with you i think you almost always mean that it's something that the director finds interesting that maybe people, other people don't. And and also that it's not immediately apparent. Like you have to think about why did we do that? You know what I sure. mean? So we're being yeah. asked to yeah. appreciate it on an intellectual level. Uh, so Emad Shyamalan makes deliberately obvious camera moves in Unbreakable that disrupt the rhythm of the scene pretty regularly. It happens mm-hmm. a lot in this film. Um, I want to mention like two examples and sort of what we can learn about him from them. So the first one, and Abe and I were talking about this off mic, is uh, the train scene, which is the second scene in the movie. And in the train scene, we are on a slider, which is like a little rail that's, that makes the camera sort of move between one edge of a seat to in between the edge of two other seats. And we're watching the entire scene from that camera that slides back and forth at like various moments to capture pieces of the drama. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now uh, it's really choice. It's or, or, not choice. It's really, it's really loud choice. Uh, yes. And the reason it's so loud is that, you know, you're watching a lot of seat, you know, you're looking at a lot of seat mm-hmm. for the framing and yeah. it moves. It moves not in a way that like we're used to. Correct. It moves in a way of like, now someone's interested in what's over here. Right. And it's almost like you kind of lose the Brechtian aspect Correct. of it, of where it's like, oh, wait, who's deciding when I go where? That's right. It's like they read the script. You That's know? right. It fe- it starts to feel after a while like a camera move. Uh, like it starts to feel like to the audience, like yeah, the camera is moving to show us something that the director wants us to mm-hmm. see, not like an intuitive part, like movement to see everything. Um, and now what's interesting about this move is the director actually tries to motivate it. Okay. But the motivator is an intellectual motivator. So what I mean by that is the scene starts with David Dunn looking at a little girl who is looking from upside down at him. Okay. Like she's on her head. Right. And he looks at her like, Oh, isn't that cute? Right. Now this little girl grounds this camera move. The camera moves coming from where the little girl is her POV. Well, it's it's her POV. POV. I'm going to put that in quotes because it's not upside down. That's the first thing. She's not upside down. She is upside down to start. Yes, she is. Yeah, but then when we see her at the end. She's she's right side up, but we never see the camera get oriented for that. Sure, sure. Right, which, and I'm not saying like, I mean, I know that's nitpicky, but Mm -hmm. it means that the point of view of the camera is not necessarily one to one. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not a one to one. Like it. Did you notice? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to point out, did you notice, though, that the the next scene when after the crash is like a happened mm-hmm. and it cuts to his son, he's upside yes, down? Yes, I did. There's a lot of upside down, and I believe this little girl is the explanation for it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Like, this, like this girl is like, this little girl is the litmus for yeah, yeah, yeah. like the, the Rosetta going. of why mm-hmm. there's so much upside down in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. So we return to her at the end of this scene and it, she's right set up, just like you said. And she seems sad, right? Like she's a sad kid now. She was following the drum. Right, man. She's following, she's exactly, just, but she's she, far yeah. too young to understand what the hell's going on, right? Which means that sure. she is... It means several things. The first thing is it's a functional thing, right? It's setting up the tragedy of this train accident. There's a kid mm-hmm. that we meet that dies, right? So that's the first thing. But again, we have that realization after the fact. So it doesn't actually give us the empathetic experience of it, right? Or excuse me, the sympathetic mm-hmm. experience of it. It's one that we have to like, oh man, and then there's that kid. Like we have to realize it after the fact. The second thing yeah, is- it's a it's go a facade. No, no, please, go ahead. No, no, it's just, I'm just saying it's a it's a facade. It's, it's most of filmmaking is- and uh, we, when we see the stitching, we go, oh, don't like that as much. It's not as clever. Yes, I agree. Uh, the other purpose that this kid serves, and I think it's, uh, it's hard to exactly summarize it correctly, but essentially the kid is helping, enabling us to judge what David Dunn did there. Right? Yes. Like it's like it's a moralization of what he did. It's like, oh, man, you're cheating on your wife, uh, which is sort of a functional decision uh, that we have more profoundly when we meet his wife, uh, which, again, requires kind of an intellectual connection, not necessarily an emotional one. Right. Like, uh, and I'm not going to, like, die on a hill for that, but, like, it's a very abstract way of doing that, of, like, judging his behavior. Right. It's like we're going to put a character whose point of view we're not totally tracking, who gives an expression a kid couldn't give to this experience so that the the audience is like, yeah, that was bad and sad what happened to that guy. You know? Um, Now, as you said, and I want to point this out, and this is like one of the things that is cool, right? This is a cool idea. Um, This upside-down kid gives us a kind of... uh, gives us a kind of, like, motif for this movie which is that like there's constant sort of people who are not oriented correctly right like there's a there's a visual trope yes. going on in this film where like people are not seeing things correctly because their orientation needs to change which is a very philosophical way of representing the change but also mm. it's a cool filmmakery way and it does work sometimes it's thematically involved right it, it, yes and yeah. i like that right i think that's cool but it and it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't um sure like for instance but i just think that with elijah's like i don't know how far you're gonna go i'm gonna go into elijah's comic book is that the next thing you're gonna talk about the his final speech in the movie being exactly what why explaining why all the point of views in this movie are fucked up yes he and and i like that right like i think it's i think it's very creative um but the question is are you getting a visceral present tense emotion from it you know what i mean like and that's the issue with m night Shyamalan in this movie and going forward is that he has to explain it to you. He has to translate this idea to you that he has that's been happening Mm -hmm. because you're not directly experiencing it. Like it's not giving you a direct emotional experience. Instead, it's kind of a loud choice that you're sort of like, huh, why did that happen? Right? Mm -hmm. So like another example of this orientation one specifically, um, when Elijah gets his first comic book, 
right? He gets his first comic book. It's outside, right? He doesn't want to go outside because he breaks his bones so easily. And you feel terrible for him, right? It's like, God, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. So he opens up this box and it's a comic book. Now the comic book is upside down, right? So the camera sticks sticking on a point of view of this comic book does a full, I want to say it's like a 540, right? It does like yeah, a 180 it's... plus a 360, right? So sick. It's like, so yeah, sick. again, it's super cool. But like, all we needed was a 180 to explain what this, what was happening. Instead, I'm following. Yeah. <laughs> instead, we get this gigantic move that is excessive for the translation, and you're sort of left. Why did he do that? Right? Like, I think an average audience member is like, why did he do that? It's a good question. It is a good question, and it's answered thematically later, but not in the present moment, which I think mm-hmm. is a problem for a director. A director needs to create an emotional experience in the moment and then also recontextualize it later. That's what he does in Sixth Sense. And he doesn't always nail it here, even with his cool ideas. Right? I'm, I'm, yeah. ready, I'm ready for you to argue with this because I, I think it would be constructive. No, I'm not arguing with it. I'm just like saying that is highly subjective and taste-based because, you know, uh, th- I think that everyone has their like maximum allowable like like I'm going to give you that birth uh, to if if they are if you trust them, I will I will go to the mat for the Coen brothers. Right. Sure. Uh, if they do weird choices like they did in Buster Scruggs, for example, a movie later in their in, the, in their career. I liked Buster Scruggs. Um, yeah. yeah, I was like, I don't understand that. I still don't understand it. Uh, I got it. You know, and I will give the time. I think. um M. Night Shyamalan is definitely demanding that we give him the whole time, the allotted, you know, runtime of the movie. He really waits until the very end to give you the missing piece. Absolutely. Um, That like some people are like, I like that. I, in fact, prefer that. But some people are bothered by the fact of you never did any. I felt like you were holding my hand the entire way. And also not tell me where we're going. Like you're doing, yeah, both which things, is right. that's sometimes a part of film, like some storytelling, right? Some people prefer that type of storytelling, a hundred percent. So that's why I'm saying it's subjective. Uh, it's subjective in insofar as whether you think that's good or not. I completely agree with you. But what you what yeah. you did perfectly for me, and why I love you so much, is mm-hmm. you just explained why he has a mixed reaction. You just explained yeah. it, like like you're right, because not everybody thinks that works. Whereas, mm-hmm. honestly, if you can create a visceral emotional experience for an audience, you're going to win over more opinions, right? Like, pe- yeah. in general, that is a less uh, disliked way to do a film, you know? And I'm not here to tell you there's one right way. I'm just here to tell you that there's a reason why in film school they hammer that films are emotion machines. It's because people connect to it. Um, and It works. Yeah, it, that's, what, the, that's the thing we all connect, like we all want. Um, more diffuse abstract experiences, which personally I mm-hmm. have made and failed at. You know, you know that mm-hmm. I've made and failed movies. We all feels fail. like that. Yeah. Um, I like those things, but they not they don't always work. You know, like they're you have to maximize. Story is maximizing your emotion units. Yes, right. You know, well that's the thing. More, pump up those numbers, baby. I'm not a robot. I swear. Well, see, but what's funny about that is if you're maximizing your emotion units, then if you're M.I. Shemlon, what you're betting on is once the twist gets into place, the emotion is like the emotion units are so high there that, that you're like, like, oh, this whole payout. thing is good now. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I and I and some people believe that about this movie. 
Some people do. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong. I'm just here to tell you that's why not everybody thinks that. You know what's another movie like this? Uh, Usual Suspects. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was going to bring up Enemy. Yep. Have you seen I, Enemy? I, a long time ago, but yeah. You get you kind of get it in the last... Mm-hmm. If you hadn't gotten it already, you kind of get it in the last like 1.3 seconds. And that's a long time to wait. Like even... even it's a long time to wait. Even Mulholland Drive... Uh, it, it, which which is not a narratively oh, yeah. cohesive I was, movie. I've been waiting for you to bring, I'm gonna up bring Lynch, it. Baby. I, I, well, we're gonna do Lynch someday. Uh, I don't know when, and I don't know what movie, but probably not his good ones. Probably more like Lost Highway <laughs> or something. Um, but like, shots. Fired. I love Lost Highway, but like not his like universally beloved ones is what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. Like the Elephant Man. <laughs> yeah, he can't do the Elephant Man. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, uh, not on this podcast. <laughs> some other podcast. Anyway, um, sure. Lynch, like Mulholland Drive, in my opinion, starts to really cohere emotionally after like the, uh, you know, the Yorando song, right? When the actual transition between mm-hmm. characters happens, mm-hmm. right? So like there's a moment where they actually switch characters. And when that happens, uh, it's like, oh, this whole movie starts to really make sense. And it starts to feel right. like, oh, shit, this thing got really intense. Um, mm-hmm. In part because that was, that's actually the, in my opinion, the interpretation like everything before that is like an interpretation of what is actually happening, which is the last six of the movie, and that's a long time to wait. Some people are gonna be like, "I hate that," you know. Um, yeah. Thank you for explaining that. So I have one more illustrative uh, point here on this uh, emotionally present versus uh, that's cool continuum, mm-hmm. and that is um, M Night Shyamalan staging. Okay, so he has this like conflict in his or this struggle in his staging. So. Mm-hmm. Let me just describe what staging is. So staging is a combination of blocking, which means uh, creating the physical motion the actors do in a scene, and where you're placing the camera. Okay, so staging is both of those things. Staging is a way of talking about where all the physical elements of a scene are set up so that you can capture that scene, right? So mm-hmm. M. Night Shyamalan stages scenes to... Um, basically like make complicated wonders uh, several times in the film. We already talked about the one on the train. We didn't talk about the very first scene in the movie, which is Elijah's origin. Okay. That scene um, happens in whatever it's 1960, whatever. And the scene is set up. So there's two mirrors. There's a mirror looking out. You're looking at a doorway at a mirror that shows people approaching this room. It's like Mm. a supply closet Mm. and there's a mirror or a dressing room. It's a dressing room. Then there's a mirror in the dressing room so that you can uh, look at basically like people who are at the reverse end of the dressing room. Like there's no good mm-hmm. angle for them. Very cool. And what's that? Just very cool. It is very cool. It's super cool. So like what happens in the scene is a woman has a baby. This baby is crying. A doctor comes in to check and discovers the baby's bones are broken. And the shot is staged in such a way that it's one shot. Okay, so like the camera tracks the women through the mirror coming in the room, then follows the doctor into the mirror, then pans down to the woman, then pans up for the doctor's reaction, and so on. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, it's again, it is very clever. It it's uh, it has some interesting reveals, you know, and some really interesting angles for different reactions, but. Um, it's not like necessary for the emotions of the scene. 
And it, it doesn't. It's really, thema- again thematically involved. He, it's thematically it, his involved. His definition of him, the way in which we define him, the, the starting terms are a reflection of something, a reflection Correct. of a reflection. So, in other words, in order for him to Elijah to find identity, you know, uh, uh, David Dunn has to find identity. That he, David Dunn's identity defines him. He doesn't define himself. Right. And that's and the problem. So you, it's his main flaw. You can see how what Abe just explained, right? You can see how you're not mm-hmm. going to get that from the no. first scene of the movie when you're watching it. No. You might get it in reflection, in hindsight, if you do a lot of thinking about it. You might get that. And it's I'm not saying it's not there. It is there, right? Abe's right. It's just that like that kind of abstraction is not emotionally available for the audience. Mm-hmm. And it has some other downsides, right? So like one of the downsides is the actors often have to slow down the delivery of their lines so the camera can reposition, and you feel it in that scene several mm-hmm. times. Like you can feel that the director is making them stop so he can repo. There's a lot of uh, he embraces off-screen dialogue in this movie, which I like. But that's not how this scene always goes. Like sometimes the scene waits for the camera to it catch waits the for it. Yeah, yeah. Which is bad. It's like you it's know? an important line. He's like, all right, I can't just like let this fly. Right. As like background noise. This has to be specifically oriented. So yeah, at least right. he knows that much. He does know that much, and I love love how ballsy he is with off-screen lines. I love mm-hmm. it. I like. I admire it so much. Every time I watch this movie, I I, I have that thought. I go like, I should be more. I should embrace off-screen lines. You more. should be confident. It's like yeah. it's a thing that happens all the time in the past. A mm-hmm. lot of older directors, Sidney Lumet, you know, like yep. these these people were like, "That's our bread and butter, baby." I don't care. Like, I don't. Yeah, like, we'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, we'll be fine. Don't look now if you've ever seen that. Like, uh, and there's just so many great films that utilize that as like a uh, your basic practice, and no one does it anymore. It's just I don't know, just a random aside about the State of the Union. No, you're right. Filmmaking. I mean, right, because it used to be really distracting to do cuts. Mm-hmm. So like you watch an old movie, like they'll jump into a close up, like the especially the ladies' close up with all the like Vaseline on the lens, you know, yeah, where yeah. it's like really like cloudy and beautiful, instant sex, yeah, 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 and they like, right, and they like they're not cutting out of that, yeah, you know I mean like they're gonna stick in that for a little bit because that's yeah. the big close up, <laughs> so there's gonna be lines off screen, like that's horny just old, old fashioned horn stories, <laughs> <laughs> tilting their to that, top hats, right there, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the lady showing games, <laughs> that's the business. Uh, yeah, just stay yeah, yeah. there. Don't cut. Don't ever cut, son. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I, I like what you're pointing out. No, that's, I mean, you're, you're right that it is a classic film language, and he's kind of repurposing it. And I love it, man. I think it's so cool, and I think it's so fun, and I wish that it always worked. You know what I mean? I wish it always worked. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to give an example of when it works incredibly well. Okay, so to contrast why this one doesn't work. So my argument for why this one didn't work is because mm. there's no emotional necessity for it, right? Like right. The, the emotions of the scene don't get heightened by it being a one You know, like it's, we're sort of just sort of, we're watching the scene play out because we're not invested enough in the stakes to know what this one means or invested mm. in the themes to know what they reflect, okay? Now, by contrast, the scene that Abe brought up earlier uh, where Joseph... David Dunn's kid threatens to shoot him to prove that he's a hero also happens in a oneer that's almost exactly the same as the oneer in uh, the beginning of the movie. That's right. And uh, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. Like we're terrified the entire time because this kid might shoot his father. 
They believe mm-hmm. it. We believe it. And the movie puts us in the point of view of a person in the scene. Like we're another person in the movie. We're not watching it from some abstract place. You know, like mm-hmm. we're sitting, we're sitting at the table while this is happening. Um, and it's so good that like, you don't notice that the camera doesn't really land every little move perfectly. Like it mm-hmm. misses a couple times, you know, and it also even has a comedy beat in it. That's very funny. Right. Where she's like, don't shoot people, Joseph. Like it pans over for that and then pans yeah. away. And it's so yeah. good um, because this is what this is what M Night Shyamalan is capable of delivering when he's really nailing it, and that is brilliant camera work that supports a deeply emotional, visceral scene that uh, is one of the best scenes in the movie. You know, and mm-hmm. he can do that, and he can do it easily, right? Uh, and so you have to admire that about him. I do. I watch that scene. I've watched that scene probably like 15, 20 times and just like, man, I don't know if I'd ever be gutsy enough to shoot the movie that way. Would you? You know, it, I don't know. Um, I so, believe in myself. <laughs> no, just, no, no, I, know <laughs> I mean, you, you should. You're a uh, I know man. what you mean. I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really powerful scene. The only thing I think of is it's like the clarity of limitation or not limitation in the sense that like someone's limited i mean like when you put a gun in a scene that scene now is about a gun a loaded gun is that of course you don't have like so anyway i brought this loaded gun so we should talk about the painting on the wall you know like this is a really interesting piece no you don't do that you talk about the fucking gun so when his back is against the wall and it's like m night you're writing a scene about someone who's going to shoot someone there's clarity in that limitation and I think that that's how he like he's like I think it, more to your point he's kind of in his head a lot he finds yes. things interesting that yes. aren't necessarily what everyone finds interesting yes. uh, because I think he has uh, I, I admire a lot about him I think we both do because he's very well versed in like the lexicon of cinema historical cinema yeah and he knows that this this is the kind of stuff that we were occupied with sometimes and he wants to make a postmodern kind of suggestion about these themes about these things that tie together the history of film th- stories that are told again told time and time again he loves cycles he loves bri- reflections as the ones he does in this one he, yep. he literally chooses comic books as a medium that the villain is like just tied intrinsically to um it's the the heartbeat of the story and it's just like well that is cool but it's like not why we love the stories so like where where are the tropes there because then you'd have to do something very viscerally unique like reformatting the comic book for modern age or something which is hard to do we've only really seen one company do that and we're in the middle of it uh Shyamalan wanted it to he wanted he was reaching for the highest highs he was swinging for the fences and it's it's most clear that he's good at his job when you get just get a simple scene about his son shooting his dad I think Uh, (laughs) I think that scene illustrates what he's good at uh, yeah, exactly. I don't want anybody to take away from it that like, well, obviously it's a good scene because it's really tense and it's like, you know, there's a there's a gun being pointed around the room. Absolutely. Of yeah. course, that's true. But like there's tons and tons of guns being held at people's faces in movies. Uh, they're not all shot like that. You no. know, he, he made a decision here that I think really helps the scene. Yeah. Um, And it is in tone and thematic with what else, the other work he's done here. And uh, frankly, and you you believe it. You believe exactly that that it. kid might shoot. You believe the, it. 
Right. And for the and for reasons that you think you're starting to believe he's right. Like that's uh, that's great. And part of the genius of that camera style is that like it's so unconventional that you start to feel like you don't know what to expect. Cuz you're right? on like, his back the whole time. You're on the his kid. back and like yeah. you're, you're panning so over going into it. Well, you're panning over to where the gunshot might be. You like like mm. you know what I mean? Like a lot of times those moves in movies set up a gunshot, like set up us seeing yeah. the gunshot. Um, and instead he uses that, he sort of keeps like, will they, won't they with the pick, the pans mm-hmm. and it really works. It's great. Um, and after it's know. done panning around, how funny would it be if it stuck, it cut and it just is the little girl on the train. <laughs> <laughs> like she's just watching the whole yeah, thing. Upside down again. Yeah. Yeah. I love she's it. She's just like, what's going on with this family? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm so sad about it. Everybody's sad. Where's Haley Joe Osman? Where's that kid's right. parent? Uh, yeah, for sure. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. So I hope that, uh, that this exploration of a couple avenues of his filmmaking have highlighted, uh, kind of, I mean, for one thing, a challenge that every director has, right? Like, cause, cause the idea of communicating your ideas in an emotionally available way to the audience, like that's the challenge every director faces. Mm-hmm. And the, almost every time that we're critiquing any director for being uh, for being like not good at their job. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Putting that in quotes, it's because their idea was communicated in a way we didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's rarely because the idea wasn't communicated at all or because like uh, they're missing steps and stuff. Like mm-hmm. um, it happens sometimes, but, but rarely most of the time it's because that barrier from one brain to another uh, wasn't crossed and I think mm. that the hate on M. Night Shyamalan has gone a little too far uh, because we're forgetting like how how often he is very successful at that, you know, mm. uh, and also like and like I know this may sound very uh, self-congratulatory, but like I think you have to admire a, a filmmaker who really bets hard on his ideas. You know, like mm-hmm. like this guy, this guy is was not it's at one point in his career at least was not afraid to uh, do the biggest boldest swing and leave it in the movie and be like it works, damn it, um, mm-hmm. because that's what we all as filmmakers dream of doing. Like he is doing mm-hmm. the dream when he does that, um, and yeah, I like and that. we like love him for it. We aren't yeah. like jealous. It's like yeah. what, no, it's the thing that unites the entire camp. Yes, it's like, it's like every time somebody like like Babe Ruth's his way into a scene, right, where he's calling a shot and does it, yeah. you just you admire it. You're like, dude, you did it, man. You're just like that man, that's some goat shit. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. You know. Uh I also personally appreciate how often uh and that Shemla very just effortlessly creates mood and tone with a camera. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he's so good at it and it's like it's like second nature to him. Um, it's almost as good as Edgar Wright is with comedy. He's like Edgar Spielbergian yeah. also. Yeah. Uh, yes. Edgar Wright is effortless at creating jokes with camera. Like it's yeah, so easy in, for him. Right. And I think M. Night is like that with, with like thriller, like the thriller vibe. He is effortless at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That's a good word. Yeah. Uh, I think it also, I think he's also a good sort of case study in why, cool ideas and cool premises don't necessarily make a good film. Like mm-hmm. just cause the premise is cool. Doesn't mean the film is going to be good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to to remember that, especially when you're a successful filmmaker, because premises <laughs> get money. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the deal. Uh, but I think M Night Shyamalan is a good taste is a good test case for like when a clever premise, like when it really works, it's everything we want a movie to be, and when it doesn't work we should remember the cool premise isn't, isn't a guarantee that the film will be good, you know? Um, and I think that's a good lesson for all of us film watchers. And, uh, I just want to finish this episode by saying, uh, do you remember a time when just talking about a comic book could be an interesting premise for a movie? Cause that feels right, like yeah, ancient comic books and yeah. Ancient well, idea. Now it's, it used to be niche, you know, like, uh, right. this was like, Ooh, comics. What an idea. Right. It's, and it was also like, remember when like someone said comic book, now everyone is thinking of the type of like, and like jolts of thoughts and uh, in like the zeitgeist's mind, you know, cool. Uh, like I collectively, I guess are like thought of like, Oh yeah. Where, you know, where you have these super pe- superheroes and super villain light versus dark, these big sweeping kind of like metaphorical tales. Right. Uh, it's not that they aren't that anymore, but they're just so ubiquitous and around and that they're kind of all story. You kind of feel like, well, comic books are just like normal stories. Like, um, Lovecraft Country, if you watch that TV show, that like feels like a comic book. All movies starting to feel like right. comic books. Right. Comic you know, books it's, becoming it's, the prime medium. Yeah. Right. It's the it's it's becoming this like very dualistic kind of approach to movies where it's this like eternal battle of dark and light. Hey, <laughs> I am really into that is like a, a thing in storytelling. It's very effective. It's very fundamental. It gets into our hearts as like one of the biggest questions to answer as humans. It's what draws us to comic books. But it's also interesting, I think, as you rightfully pointed out, when this movie does it, it feels like it's saying like, this is something unique to that tradition. But now that since that tradition has kind of become all filmic tradition, the, the lexicon is now shorthanded that is just the, this is just this, what it is. This is just the reality we're in is where comic, comic book, char- comic book S characters are who are playing our leading men and women and whatnot. It's just very, it's very strange how even yeah. in 20 years, the entire landscape can totally warp. Uh, I mean, uh, right. That's, that's what's striking to me about it is like, wow, we really expect different things out of movies than we did when he made this. Uh, I also, I think what I, the reason I like it still is that he's talking about a version of comic books that I find more interesting than comics usually. Mm-hmm. Like, like the idea that comic books point to a sort of deeper human experience, uh, mm-hmm. and like exploring that deeper human experience. It's unique. Yeah. Well, yeah, they Even don't today. do it much in comic book movies and that's what yeah. I like about it. You know, it's, um, uh, it's pretty rad yeah. that, uh, like the arc of the story is that he does do a hero- he does the most heroic thing he saves a family or yep. at least two kids, but like the mundane aspect of how he accomplishes it all the way down to like it's surprise like it surprises him like he just kind of stumbles upon it he almost dies from a very mundane once again water uh, he he almost drowns in a pool. Like all that stuff. That's the lead up. That's the big moment. It's not, 
you know, people crashing through, you know, paint gla- right. glasses, uh, glass panes. And he doesn't you know, like M night doesn't ever collapse into sensationalism with his comic tropes. Mm-hmm. Like the, the way that Bruce Willis disposes of the bad guy uh, is like, he just chokes him out, you know? And he's like so yeah. strong that this guy can't escape. He that's just it. can't get it. Yeah. You know, that's he's it. Unbreakable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. unbreakable. Right. That's, that's his superpower is like, you know, you're done once he gets a hold of you. That's it. He's just Rocky. Right. But it's, but it's not the matrix, right? It's not throwing a dude through a wall or, and it's not yeah, like, you yeah, know, yeah. shooting a beam out of your hand or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that M night Shyamalan was wise to undersell that because it, it keeps the focus on the human aspect of comic books. You know, like it, it keeps us focused on like, uh, like the ex- the emotional experience of being this kind of a figure, which again, uh, even though there's a lot of comics and movies about comics that are about that subject, Unbreakable is a lot more visceral than like most Batman, you know, or most Supermans or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, um, not necessarily better, but like, um, but this is a guy who really journeys from self doubt into acceptance in a way that's not very tropey. And I like that about it. Yeah. I do think unbreakable could have a better title. Yeah. I think, right. I think that like M night Shyamalan had his finger on some cool stuff here, like a lot of really cool stuff and a lot of emotionally interesting stuff and, and like nailed a lot of it, but not all of it. And uh, which I think is why people don't always remember this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, f- I, I don't know if I'm right about this, but I feel like people remember Signs even more than this. Uh, partly because Signs, I think, is worse. So I think like the disappointment of Signs kind of made it stick around. Um, right? Yeah. But am I wrong about that? I feel like Unbreakable is kind of flying under the radar now. Yeah, yeah, it is. I just think it would be better if it was called Strong Man versus Brain Man. <laughs> Don't you, you don't believe in anything. <laughs> you, no, you're a. You're it's a, all chaos. Yeah, Life you're a is black a hole in there. Of chaos. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. a constant fire hydrant of happening. A lot of nihilism in there. Yeah, it's uh, dark in here. Yeah. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> Who turned off the lights? All right, all right. Yeah. I'm di- I'm good. That that was well said, sir. Thank you. Thank uh, you. I enjoyed and, our, our dialogue throughout about it uh, mm-hmm. because I I don't expect everyone to agree with what is basically a judgmental take on M. Night Shyamalan. Like it's a I mean, fundamentally I think moralizing. It's a, I actually think it's a very balanced take. You're not, ta- you're not saying M. Night's good or bad. You're just saying, Hey guys, Hey everybody, you know, it's can be both. Right. Well here, and here's why, right? Like I'm going to explain to you. It, it's, the I kind think of that, thing- that might be, I think I, I was elusive. There was elucidations. Okay. If, if that's a word for me. Uh, as well, you know, oh, yeah. like I think that uh, I think that hopefully you enjoyed this. I did. El- elucidating Abe, I love old elucidating Abe. No, no, no. I'm just talking about the audience. Oh, the audience. <laughs> well, who knows? We'll find you, out. The 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 author. Um, and if you liked more of that, uh, you know, come to our Patreon and all that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Please, if you enjoy director piece uh, and you got a buck to spare and you haven't already given us one of your spare bucks. Dude, uh, maybe maybe think toss we'll it our be way. doing we'll this you're gonna see another one of these and it's gonna be my turn mm. in like two weeks mm. 
I love these. I do too. These are so good, dude. I really enjoy director piece uh, making it as a creator yeah. because it makes me watch movies I wouldn't watch, um, or revisit right. movies I wouldn't revisit. You know, mm-hmm. 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 Um, and it makes me think about my craft, which I love. It's my beloved craft. Mm. You know, so mm. and M Night Shyamalan, if you ever hear this, uh, hey man, we love you. You're a great filmmaker. Yeah, uh, I'm jealous of all the great things you've done. Uh, mm-hmm. so don't let anything I said here take away from that because that's the truth. Mm-hmm. Also, is like is like I don't think Mark Wahlberg's like a cool guy, right? <laughs> he seems like a dick, but like t- tell me if you thought yeah. he's a cool guy or not. Like I I want to I'd like to know. Let's hear it, give us the objective opinion on Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. That would be an interesting thing to hear from I'd like to close Sean the book Wall. on how to feel about Mark Wahlberg. I'd like to. No, I, it's it's <laughs> trains already <laughs> left that station. But uh, you know, Good work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.